Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John chapter 3? John chapter 3 in your Bibles. I hope that you can open a copy of the Word of God and see the words for yourself. So this, this morning as I preach, you'll know that the things that I'm saying are not just my opinion, but are actually the Word of God. We are, with the Lord's help, beginning a week of meetings in our morning service, and all this week we're going to be dealing with the subject of having fellowship with God, developing a strong personal walk with God, and I hope that you're planning to be here for every service, and I hope that the result of this week's study will be a great benefit to each one of our spiritual lives. But the place that we have to start when we talk about having fellowship with God, walking with God, knowing Him personally and intimately, is with right here in John chapter 3, what Jesus deals with, the fact that every one of us needs to be born again. Or another Bible word, which means the same thing, we need to experience the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in the book of Titus, chapter 3, that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration and the washing or the cleansing that comes from the power of God and through the blood of Christ which has been shed for us. You say, now, Pastor, why are you starting here talking about regeneration? Well, because, simply put, it is my experience that many people assume that they have a relationship with God because they attend church, because they carry a Bible, because they consider themselves to be a Christian, because they believe in God. Because they are religious, they assume they have a relationship with God. Biblically, this is not a wise assumption. Because the truth is, many people who assume that they have a relationship with God do not actually have a relationship with God. The man in John chapter 3 that Jesus is going to deal with is an example of this. He was a man who had many reasons to think that he had a relationship with God, but there was something fundamentally wrong, and Jesus addressed that issue in this passage. In my experience speaking with folks about their hope of heaven and having a relationship with God, I have heard many different explanations for why folks think that they are right with God. For instance, I've had people tell me before, I have always been a Christian. I was born into a Christian family. We went to church since I was a little kid. So I have just always believed in God. I've always worshipped Him. I've always believed in Jesus. So therefore, I am right with God and I have a relationship with God. I hope you'll see from the message this morning that is not a good conclusion. There is not one of us that is right with God from our birth. There's not one of us that can legitimately say, I have always been right with God. And if you are saying, I have always been right with God, 
it's indicating that there is something wrong in the heart. We'll deal with that. Some people say, have said to me, well, I had this or that emotional experience. I asked one young man one time how he knew that he was saved, and he told me that he blew the shofar. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I have an idea, but he told me that that's how he knew that he was saved. And he was not really open to me challenging him about whether or not he had been born again. I have had other people tell me that, for instance, they have spoken in tongues, or they've had an intense emotional experience, or I've had other people tell me, well, I know that I'm saved because one time I was very close to death and God delivered me and I didn't die and I'm alive today, so therefore I know that I am saved. Now, while these things are noteworthy experiences in a person's life and undoubtedly mark some interesting memories that they have, none of these line up with what the Bible describes as salvation or having a relationship with God. What we find in the Bible is that for a person to have a relationship with God or as it's put in this passage, to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to read John chapter 3 verses 1 through 21 because I believe that this is a crystal clear passage which reminds us of the necessity of the new birth. You'll notice that this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking And he is speaking to a man named Nicodemus, who was a very religious, very respected man. And Jesus had the audacity to say to him that he was not right with God and that he needed to be born again. John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi... We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, 
and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life, excuse me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Consider with me for a few moments this morning the necessity of the new birth. Ye must be born again. Now there's a man who's described here in John chapter 3. He was a religious teacher. In fact, he's described as a ruler of the Jews. And what that means is, that he sat on the council of religious men who judged in all of the religious affairs of the Jewish people. He was responsible to hear about cases where someone was accused of breaking the law of Moses and judging whether that person was righteous or unrighteous. He was also tasked in that council with hearing matters that pertain to understanding the law of God that was given to Moses and interpreting that law and applying it to their society. So you could understand that Nicodemus is not only a very religious man, he was, but he is also a very respected man. He is not some kind of a person who bought his way into this position. He is a legitimately moral man. If you were to meet Nicodemus, I think you would come away saying, here's a man who is very genuine in the things that he believes. Here's a man who understands a lot about the scriptures. Now, he came to meet with Jesus by the cover of night, and the reason for that is because Jesus was quite controversial, especially among the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But Nicodemus had his curiosity piqued. Evidently, he had heard some things about Jesus, and Jesus was the subject of discussion among the religious leaders, and perhaps Nicodemus himself had heard Jesus' teaching, had been present when some of the miracles were done, and he had a great curiosity about who Jesus was. So he came to Jesus by night, hoping that no one would find out that he had come because he wanted to have a private audience with Jesus and ask Jesus some important questions. The first question that Nicodemus asked was pertaining to 
the identity of Jesus. He's basically asking Jesus, who are you? We know that you must come from God because you do all of these miracles. That is the end of the planned conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus. From this point, Jesus takes control of the conversation and he takes the conversation to the point of Nicodemus's greatest need. He didn't waste any time because his immediate response to Nicodemus is along the lines of, you don't understand because you need to be born again. And this is a serious need in your life. And so then Jesus continues to press this claim forward. Now, as we think about what it means to be born again, I want to approach this from several different aspects. First of all, I want you to consider the problem that we all share in common. Every one of us. If you are a human being, you have the same problem as I do and as everyone else that is sitting around you. And that problem is also shared by Nicodemus in this passage. And that problem is that all of us are sinners against God. We are not right with God. In our default position, we come into this world with a nature that is bent towards sin. And as soon as we can make choices for ourselves, we make choices that are consistent with that sinful nature to indulge our selfish lusts. And we do this over and over and over and over again. Now, some of us are better at covering that over and putting on a facade of morality and of kindness and and that sort of thing so that folks can't see what's really in the heart. But what we know without question from the scriptures, and this is the declaration of God in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. So while you might be tempted, if you were talking with Nicodemus, to look at him and say, now here's a guy who is devout, here's a man who is sincere, here's a man who is doing things passionately because he believes them, if anybody has a relationship with God, it must be Nicodemus. You might be tempted to think that. But what God's declaration is... And what Jesus knew about Nicodemus is that for all of the outward appearance, Nicodemus had the exact same problem as everyone else. Now, Nicodemus may not have liked to think about it, but he had the same default position as the lepers and the blind people and the other sick people that Jesus healed and that Jesus ministered to. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he has this problem. We're told in Romans 5 and 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This means that you and I have a default position of our relationship with God being ruined. And it is ruined through our own sin against God, through our own rebellion against God's holy law. And this morning, if you were to take the time to consider and really look back on your life, you might be the sweetest, 
little old lady or the nicest old gentleman. But if you've never been born again, I guarantee you can look back in your life and you can see that you have broken God's law not once, not twice, not 300, not 4,000, but most likely hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times, you have broken God's law. And the book of James tells us that what it takes to be guilty before God is one infraction of God's holy law. Even this morning, if you say you are an extra righteous person, you're more moral than the average, and let's say that you have broken God's law a mere 100 times in your life. Well, you only need one, so you are 100 times condemned. And I would propose this morning that you have sinned against God many more times than that. You see, the problem that we share in common this morning is that we are sinners against God. Now, Nicodemus came to Jesus not understanding this, though he had studied the law, and though he was aware of what God had said, he was not necessarily understanding that he was condemned by God. What was it that kept him from seeing his condemnation? No doubt, it was his spiritual pride. One of the greatest afflictions of mankind is spiritual pride. And today, there are multitudes of religious people who assume that they are right with God simply because they are better than the average person and they go to church. This will not keep you from condemnation because of your sin. Today, just like in Jesus' day, you must be born again. Now, Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word see that is used in this verse speaks of perception and understanding. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you can't even begin to understand the kingdom of God because you've never been born again. Many people are confused about the kingdom of God because they've never been born again. Perhaps, in fact, undoubtedly, there are some who are sitting in the audience today who are confused about the kingdom of God and confused about salvation. And the reason that you are so confused is because you have not been born again and you need to be born again. I'm not saying these things out of unkindness or because I have something against you. To the contrary, I'm saying these things because they are the truth, and they must be reckoned with. I care deeply about your soul, and it would be awful for you to go out into eternity thinking that you are right with God, only to find out that you've never been born again. Jesus was speaking with great compassion to Nicodemus and saying to him, you need to be born again. The problem that is faced by all men is that we are spiritually dead. Until we are born again, we are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, in speaking about salvation, says to those who had been saved that they had been quickened. And that means to be 
made alive. And the reason that they had been needed to be quickened was because they were dead in trespasses and sins. Now that word dead, which is used in Ephesians 2, and the idea here that you and I need to be partakers of spiritual life, and all of us can readily recognize that we think of life being marked, the beginning of life being marked by birth. And obviously, in the womb, the child is still alive. Obviously, life begins with conception. But we mark the beginning of a person's life by your birthday. When were you born? That's the time when you came into the world. Okay, that's your birthday. In like manner, there is a need for spiritual life, and that is relationship with God, to have a beginning. It is imperative that you must be born again. And the reason that you must be born again is because before you're born again, you are spiritually dead. To be spiritually dead simply means you have no relationship with God. Now, I understand the protest right away. No, no, you don't understand, Pastor. I read the Bible. I go to church. I'm a Christian. I pray, I know that I have a relationship with God. I'm telling you this morning on the authority of the word of God and on the authority of the words of Jesus, if you have never been born again, you do not have a relationship with God. You are spiritually dead. There is a great necessity to deal with this matter. This is the problem that is facing us. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of life. And those who are not a part of the kingdom of God by way of the new birth are dead in their sins. This is the problem. But now notice with me for just a moment the solution that most men resort to. Most men are aware because God has put within them the knowledge of sin through something that he has implanted in each one of us deep within our soul, called the conscience. And the conscience is vexed when we break God's law. And of course, the the conscience can be reshaped and seared and all sorts of things, but God has been gracious in giving us a conscience so that we inherently know that it's wrong to sin. This is why a child without much instruction, maybe not even any instruction, though they will readily sin, they will also try to hide their sin. So they might try to steal something, maybe something that their mom told them not to take, but then they're going to try to hide it so that they don't get caught. And what is going on? Well, they're experiencing guilt. They're experiencing uh, the, the idea that I have done something that is wrong. So God puts that conscience inside of us, Because we have that conscience, we know deep down inside there's something that's not right. And so man goes about to try to solve this problem, to console himself and make sure that he senses that he's right with God. And the the most common solution that men propose, and we're going to talk about a couple of others, but the most common solution that men propose is they try to do enough good works to assuage their conscience, to salve their conscience and make themselves feel better so that they can believe about themselves, I am a good person, surely God will accept me, 
I've done enough good works that God necessarily has to accept me. This is actually what Nicodemus was involved in, in his religion. And this is part of his default as he's interacting with Jesus. He's, he's circling back to this place, to this position of safety that is found in his good works. I can't tell you how many people I've had conversations with who, when asked about their hope of heaven, shared with me that their hope of heaven was, I'm a good person, I keep the Ten Commandments, I do my best to honor God and to worship Him, so surely God will accept me. If anybody's going to make it, surely I'm going to make it. And this is not a good solution. Romans chapter 10 verse 3 tells us that there are those who being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. It's possible for a person to go about and start doing good works, be kind to the neighbor, read your Bible, uh, pray, get baptized a couple of times. I mean, get baptized five, six, seven times, as many times as possible, so that you could be sure. Uh, go to, make sure that you attend services. Drop something in the offering plate. Do some of these things to make sure that you're right with God. Really show others that you are an upstanding, outstanding person. Surely God will accept this. You're going about to establish your own righteousness. And God says, in doing that, you have not submitted yourself to the righteousness of God. Specifically, you have not submitted yourself to the righteousness of God, which is imputed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is the context of Romans chapter 10. So there's a solution that is proposed, but we'll find if we search the scriptures that it is insufficient. For instance, if today you were to make a deal with God and you were somehow to come up with a way to avoid sinning for the rest of your life, which would be quite remarkable, by the way, but if you were able to do such a thing, you still have all of that sin that is in the past that you are responsible for. It's not as if God is going to overlook the sins of the past because you have done better in the future. So there is a need for that sin to be dealt with. Now, some people try to employ good works to solve the problem. There are others who just ignore the problem and they pretend that everything is fine. They say things like, well, I just don't believe in a God that judges sin. Well, that's nice. You could believe in whatever God you want, but that doesn't change the fact that God judges sin. From Genesis to Revelation, God judges sin. He's consistently revealed himself as the God who is the righteous judge. So it might give you warm fuzzies to trade him out for a God that makes you feel better, But that doesn't mean that you get to choose what God you will stand in front of. You will still be in front of the God of the Bible on Judgment Day, and you will still be responsible for your sin. You can't just say, well, you know, it's all fine. I'm good. It's all going to work out. You know, I think God will give me another chance. Maybe, Maybe when I stand before him, he'll work a plea bargain for me. You know, all of this stuff is extra-biblical ideas about what might happen, conjecture. 
when actually the Bible has told us exactly what will happen, it is very foolish to go into eternity on conjecture when you have God's clear revelation about preparing yourself for the day of judgment. When this conversation began, Nicodemus was actually sitting in judgment on Jesus. He was coming to judge Jesus and find out if he was who they thought maybe he might be. The other religious leaders were doing the same. Very quickly in the conversation, Nicodemus was no longer on offense. He was quickly put in a place where he realized he was not the one who was judging. Jesus was the one who was judging. Nicodemus was used to being in charge, being the judge, being the one who controlled the conversation. He had never met anyone like Jesus. I propose to you this morning, you may have great confidence that you can work this out. You've never met anything like the God of heaven. You've never stood before him. Judgment day will be very different than what you think. So please do not just ignore this problem and pretend that everything is fine. If you've never been born again... You are in eternal peril. Not only that, but we find in verses 19 through 21, which we read just a few minutes ago, that one of the things that men do, and one of the reasons they don't want to be born again, is because they are dwelling in darkness. And they love their sin. They love their evil deeds. And they do not want to come to the light. They refuse the light because they say, I'm having fun living over here. I'm doing the things that I enjoy. Who does God think he is to tell me how to live? Well, he's God. He has every right to tell you how to live. He has every right to tell you what is right and what is wrong. He has every right to tell you that you must be born again. But people will try to run from being born again. You know, it's, it's interesting to me how many times I've had someone say to me, well, I would get saved, but I know if I get saved, my life would have to change. And I like my life the way that it is. I enjoy the things that I'm doing, and I don't want to give those things up. So I'm not going to be born again. I'll deal with that some other time. You be careful about that. Some other time is likely never going to come. If the Holy Spirit is dealing with you now, don't let the trivial pursuits of this world keep you from Christ. So there's a proposal, there is a solution that is made by most men, and it is, well, we can fix this ourselves. But Jesus is clearly teaching something different in John chapter 3, is he not? Because he really deals with the real need, the true need that every one of us has. The true need that we have is not patching up a little bit in our life, cleaning things up, just tidying it up a little bit and saying, okay, now God, it's much better. That's not what we need. What we need is a complete transformation. We need a complete work of regeneration And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses the phrase repeatedly, 
born again in this passage. He uses an analogy in verses 5 and 6, which many have misunderstood, thinking that Jesus is talking about baptism and being born again. Verse 5 is not talking about baptism at all. Verse 5, being born of water, is clearly speaking about the physical birth. The physical birth process involves a water sack or a sack of fluid that is a part of that birth process. It is a mark of birth. He's not talking about baptism at all, and he makes that clear in the next verse when he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. If you were born from human beings, you are a human being. That makes sense, doesn't it? I think we're all human beings here today. Praise the Lord. By the way, one race, the human race, God made one. We're all the same. We're flesh and blood. And we may have differences of culture and language and background and all that, but we are the same. We are people. We are human beings made in the image of God. And if you were born into a human family, you are a human being. You can't be a cat. You can't be a dog. You can't be a snake or a scorpion. You can't be a fish. You're a human being and you always will be. That's just how it is. Now, you can pretend to be something else, but you are what you are. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Meaning, if you have never experienced the second birth, if you've never been born of the spirit, you do not have spiritual life. You only have flesh life. And flesh life is short-lived. Flesh life without spiritual life, the first birth without the second birth, yields condemnation and eternal destruction. Now, Jesus points out every one of us must experience the new birth. And this new birth is the work of the Spirit of God. Many times, we are trying to reduce salvation to a process of steps to follow instead of realizing it is the work of God. So we're telling people, okay, now you need to do this, and now you need to do this, and now you need to pray this prayer, and make sure when you pray this prayer that you've got all of these magic words in the prayer. And then we assume, okay, they got saved. But the truth of the matter is, if the Spirit of God was not involved in that process, that was just somebody doing some things that did not save them. There is no magical formula for salvation. Now, we're going to talk about what it is to respond to the gospel and to be born again in just a moment. Right now, I just want you to understand that without the Spirit of God dealing in your life, You cannot and you will not be saved. It's impossible. Salvation is a work of the Spirit of God. It is spiritual life. There is no preacher, no church, no religious organization that can confer spiritual life upon you. That is the domain of the Spirit of God alone. 
And he is very clear, Jesus is very clear here to explain that the Spirit is involved in this work. The Spirit deals with each one of us uniquely. This is why no two salvation testimonies are exactly the same. Because the Spirit of God knows you intimately and personally. He knows everything about you. And the way he deals with each individual is unique and different to that individual. Although there will always be common elements pertaining to the person of Christ and the message of the gospel. Some people, when they get saved, cry tears of joy. Others weep sorrowfully for the sins that they have committed. Still others have no tears at all. Three different people, three different experiences, and three people who are truly saved. There's not a formula, and sometimes... This is a danger, especially for our young people who grow up in our church. They sit in the pew, and the testimonies that people share are wonderful and helpful and can shed some light, but they'll hear somebody say something in their testimony and think, oh, that's what I'm missing. I didn't cry for two and a half days. Okay, this time I'm going to cry for two and a half days, and I'm going to really get it. No, that's not what saves anybody. That, that's not even the mark of salvation. You see, the Holy Spirit is going to deal with you uniquely. You'll know when the Spirit is dealing with you. You're not going to be confused about that. What I want to warn against here, though, is I don't want you to become fearful or to develop a spirit of futility to say, Oh, well, you know, I can't be saved. I'm waiting on the Spirit. Well, chances are he's been dealing with you. Chances are he's been convicting you. What you should do is you should come to a place of seeking the life-changing power of the Spirit in your life. You should ask God to work in your life and to show you your need of salvation. You should come to him and ask him to make himself clear through his word... And this is what I want you to understand, is that the the new birth is a work of the Spirit, but the new birth is also a work of the Scripture. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 says, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever." What you'll find is that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And the thing that the Spirit uses to bring us to a place of conviction about our sin and an acknowledgement of the truth and a willingness to turn to Christ, He uses the Scriptures. He uses the Word of God. And so this morning, I hope that even as I'm preaching, the Scripture is being applied in some hearts and the Spirit of God is saying to some people, You're not right with God. You've never been born again. What he's saying is true. And you can sense even now the agreement of the Spirit of God in your heart. He's convicting you and drawing you to himself. So what is your responsibility to that? Well, you and I are responsible to respond or to obey the convicting work of the Spirit. 
We are to obey the gospel. You see, the bad news is that we are lost and can't save ourselves. But the good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, died in our place, shed his blood so that we can be forgiven and so that we can be saved. Jesus himself alludes to this in this conversation in verse number 14 when he speaks about how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He's going back in Old Testament history, remembering a time when many people in the nation of Israel were bitten by serpents and the remedy that God gave was for Moses to make a serpent out of brass and hold it up in the air. And God's declaration was simply this, whoever looks at the serpent will be healed. That's it. It's not complicated. There's no special medications involved. It's simply look at the serpent, and obviously they are to be looking with faith, and they're going to be healed. So then Jesus, and of course Nicodemus understands this, he's a a scholar of Old Testament history, he compares this to how the Son of Man would be lifted up. And he says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How was the Son of Man lifted up? He was lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth on a cross, where he died for our sins where he willingly shed his blood as a propitiation or a covering for our sins. And Jesus says that spiritual birth is equated with looking with hope to the one who is crucified for our sins. So what is our response? Don't overcomplicate this. Don't make this something that it's not. It's simply this. When the Spirit deals in your heart with conviction and you realize that you are condemned before God and that you're going to stand before Him and that you're guilty of your sins, and you realize that there is a remedy for your sin, and that remedy is Jesus Christ, who was lifted up. He died, was buried, and rose again so that you could be saved. Simply this, look and live. Look to the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world for your sins. And understand there is no other way of salvation. Simply this, look and believe on Christ. Now you'll notice that we must respond. The Spirit is working in our hearts. Do you remember those of you who are saved when the Spirit worked in your heart and convinced you that you were guilty before God and that Christ had died in your place and that He was the only hope that you had? Do you remember when you looked to Him and you were reborn by the Spirit of God? You should remember that. And if you don't remember that, there is a problem. And the problem is, very likely, that you have been trying to avoid admitting that you need to be saved. And you have been trying to go about and make your own righteousness rather than accepting the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. When the Spirit works in your heart to convict you of the need of salvation, you must respond with repentance and faith. You must believe on Christ who died for our sins. You must also come to the light and turn from the darkness of sin which is what Jesus speaks about in verses 19 through 21. 
There is a need to be real about your sin and to turn away from that darkness and come to the light. Now, very simply this morning, let's ask the question, what is the new birth? Is it getting shivers up and down your your arm, getting goosebumps, having the hair stand up on the back of your neck, having an emotional experience where you stand and say, oh, I feel so close to God. No, that's not what it means to be born again. Now, I'm not suggesting that those things can't happen, but that's not what it means to be born again. The new birth is simply this. It is the work of the Spirit of God through the work of Christ, whereby we are birthed into the family of God and the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, and he speaks about in several places in this passage, that we must enter the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of heaven. To enter, that's simple enough to understand, isn't it? Open the door, walk inside, You're now in a different place. Enter the kingdom of God. But what is a kingdom? A kingdom has a king. A kingdom has authority. A kingdom has rulership. And entering the kingdom of God has very strong overtones of surrender to the authority of God in your life. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that if you get saved, you'll never struggle with this. Actually, the struggle with this is the makings of sanctification, isn't it? This is what we deal with as believers on a daily basis. But there is definitely, without a doubt, in the scriptures, the implication that there is an aspect of surrender that is involved in being born again. There is an aspect of surrendering to God and saying, I may not understand all that this means, but I am willing to come under the authority of God in my life. As long as you refuse his authority, you refuse his salvation. Enter the kingdom. This is the work of the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit has to break our heart has to show us our need, has to convict us, and then we have to make the choice to say, okay, I I want that. I want that more than my way. Then, he says, when we enter the kingdom, we receive life. This is that idea. When you're born again, there's a new beginning. There's a spiritual life which is given to you. Now, in the Bible, it's important to understand that life means relationship with God. Life means, it means that you are in in fellowship with God. Life is not just, well, I'm alive, you know. I mean, sometimes people ask you how you're doing. Well, I'm alive. And sometimes that's all we're hoping for, you know. Another day, this this side of the dirt seems pretty good. All right, I'm thankful for that. But God has more in in mind than that when he talks about life and especially about everlasting or eternal life. What he has in mind is a living, true, real, vibrant relationship with God. So when you receive life, now you have the opportunity through Jesus to have life with God. 
to have fellowship with him, to have a relationship with him. And that leads us to this thought, the new birth is really the beginning. Not the end, it's the beginning. The new birth is the beginning of a walk and a relationship with God. The new birth is not some kind of an isolated event that guarantees heaven and allows me to go on and do whatever I want to do with my life. Sometimes when I talk to people about the new birth, I get the idea that they think, yeah, that's something I did back when I was a kid. Never had anything to do with my life after that, you know, but at least I know I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord. No, that's not salvation. You see, this is the beginning of a relationship. Wouldn't it be strange if I said, yep, my wife and I got married 20 years ago, you know, it was great on our wedding day. We had a great day. Haven't seen her since. You'd say, well, that's odd. I thought a wedding was the beginning of a relationship. That's how the new birth is. That's why it's so odd when people say, yeah, I got saved 30 years ago, but nothing ever changed. Nothing's ever different. There's no real relationship with God. You see what I'm saying? There's a problem there. So now to bring us up to where we're going from here tonight and the rest of the week, the new birth is the beginning of a true real relationship with God. Sometimes we talk about having a real relationship with God. And people, I believe, want to have a real relationship with God. We were made to desire that. We were made to crave that. In fact, there's a part of us that is incomplete without having a real relationship with God. And believers want to have that. But until you have been born again... A real relationship with God is impossible. You can't just put Christian structures into your life and discipline your life enough and get everything organized and say, okay, now I have a relationship with God. It's not sufficient. You need to be born by the Spirit of God. Now, if you have been born by the Spirit of God, if you've been born again, what you're going to find is that new birth experience is something that you can remember. You may not remember the exact date that it happened, but you certainly are going to remember the event. You are going to remember when you met God. If you don't remember that, I'm going to suggest to you this morning, there is a problem. You need to examine yourself and find out what's going on there because this is something that is so significant. This is so important. You say, well, my parents told me that I got saved, you know, when I was younger. I would never, I'm not doubting your parents' word, but I would never take your parents' word for, it, for whether or not you have been born again. Amen. Your parents are not going to be there on judgment day. It's going to be you and God. You better make sure that you have a real relationship with God, which starts with being born again. Now, if you have been born again... God's will is, his plan is, that you would enter into a personal, intimate, daily relationship with him. This is what we're going to talk about tonight and the rest of the week, is that relationship. But none of the rest of it is going to make any sense to you if you've never been born again. Simply put, this morning, in the words of Jesus... Ye must be born again.